Welcome to Harper Academic Calling. Our podcast is designed to give educators, students, as well as every reader, a behind-the-scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well-loved favorites to up-and-coming debut writers, about their books. Professor Emeritus of Music at Yale University, where he teaches the popular undergraduate course, Exploring the Nature of Genius. In The Hidden Habits of Genius, he examines 14 key traits of genius and reveals what we can learn from history's brilliant minds. We spoke with Craig about some of the takeaways from the book, including how to harness creative thinking and acknowledging the perhaps unsavory side of genius. So we are joined right now by Craig Wright. He is the author of The Hidden Habits of Genius. And Craig, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Michael. Delighted to be here. So this book is based off of a course that you teach. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about that course? Yeah, it's a course that I started about um, 15 years ago now. And when I announced to my children that I was going to be teaching this course on genius at Yale, they said, you? That's, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. You, you are a plotter. Uh, and they were, they were absolutely right. And um, they are still, I think they're still somewhat, somewhere between horrified and mystified that I of all people would be teaching a course on genius. But that's how it got started. Just have this idea that it'd be really fun to do. I'd been working with Mozart, working a little bit with Leonardo da Vinci, working a little bit with Einstein, seeing lots of connective tissues there and saying, well, gee, that'd be really fun. And then I like to say, well, that's why we have all these young people loitering up the place around here. We might as well give them something productive to do. We'll bring them in here and make a course. We'll call it the genius course or exploring the nature of genius. And that's how this came to be about 15 years ago. And it was great, great fun. I had so much fun. I was, I was paid, hired by Yale to be a music professor. But my, real passion, my real passion became this genius class. That's great. Uh, so, and you do talk about this in the beginning of the book, but for our listeners, can you sort of define for us what, how would you define genius or a genius? Well, I have this big, long definition that's actually given in the book there. But mm-hmm. e- even after writing the book, I've come to see, I was getting close to it in the process of writing the book, but I don't think I really nailed it in the book. It was only after the book was written. And maybe that's why we write <laughs> <laughs> to tell the author what they should be thinking all along, Um, that it came to me that maybe I could simplify this, this complex definition of genius. I think what we read in dictionaries and things about what definition of genius are are woefully inadequate. So I had this long academic definition, but then I came to see that it really could be reduced to something akin to a very simple, almost mathematical formula. And that would be genius equals significance times number of people people affected times the duration of the impact. So in all of this, the the key word seems to be um, significance. What what does significant mean? Significant for whom? Are we talking about significant for somebody in uh, Lagos, Nigeria? Are we talking about uh, significance for somebody in Shanghai, China? Or significance for somebody in Brooklyn, New York? 
uh, we all have our points of reference. We each person has his or her values. It's a definition is dependent upon culture at a particular time. Um, but this is one way of sort of framing a hugely complex and hugely independent um, question and uh, having a simple formula G, genius equals significance times the number of people impacted times the duration of that impact might set some kind of, as I say, framework for a, uh, a rational discussion, again, of a complex issue. Yeah, I think that's a very, um, yeah, that simplifies it down a lot. Yeah, it's kind, of, like kind of a a back of an envelope, back of the envelope approach to genius. <laughs> <laughs> well, my uh, my dad's a math teacher, so I'm sure he'll appreciate oh, the, um, the um, formula there. <laughs> I'm going to get away from him. Wow. <laughs> that's not that's not my that's not my forte. So, um, being a genius you would think is great, um, but obviously not everybody can be a genius. And as you talk about in the book, there. are maybe some drawbacks to being a genius where we might not all want to be geniuses. So what do you hope that people gain from this book, if not for us all to become geniuses? Um, it was an interesting process because what I started out doing was trying to get inside the heads of all of these geniuses and my brilliant, I really do mean brilliant editor at HarperCollins, it kept pushing me to say, okay, what's the takeaway here? What, let's make this something than, uh, than simply an academic exercise. Let's have it, let, why can't it be of relevance to the everyday individual? And I came to, came to see that as I was thinking through these issues, lo and behold, almost against my will, there were a number of, of takeaways that allow we non-geniuses to change our lives, to be using the way the geniuses think, to change our lives in very productive, very creative sorts of ways. And I, I could work through some of those with you. It's sort of your call as to how we use our time, Michael. Um, we could go through some of those or we could leave it at that with a, with a general statement. Yeah, that you study the minds of these geniuses, you don't have to be jerks like many of them were, but um, you can um, expropriate what they had in their heads to improve your life. Well, one thing I wanted to talk about was creativity. So let, let's talk about that a little bit. Um, how, how do these habits and the lessons you talk about in the book, how can creatives use that to unleash their creativity and sort of think outside the box? Well, it's a complex and maybe in some cases a lifelong process. First, you have to be very curious. Now, what does curiosity have to do with creativity? Well, as I, as I say there, I have a whole chapter on be the fox. What the heck does that mean? It means don't be the hedgehog. Don't bore down a thousand miles deep. You'd be better off going a thousand miles wide because you could see a a lot of different stuff. Yeah, you got to know stuff, and particularly early on in your life, particularly early on in your career, you got to pay your dues and become something of a specialist in a particular discipline, whether it's medicine, finance, uh, whatever, science, math, whatever. But as time goes on, you have to push yourself, and 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 maybe you need to be passionate, but you have to to. Put yourself in a situation where you can continually exercise and give free rein to your creativity. By doing so, you get stuff in your head. 
as this box type person begins to root around the world and root around all of human experience. And then as time goes on, you begin to make connections. So you have to be curious, but at the same time, you have to have a, a mindset that allows you to make connections. I call that combinative thinking. Steve Jobs has a great quote about that. He says, uh, I think it was, well, oh, it was an interview in Wire that he did about 2005 um, or 2007, where he says, you know, these creative types, they just combine things. They see things that the rest of us don't see. They see those connections and they put two plus or one plus one perhaps together and they get two. And two is a, is a new transformative um, idea that may change the world, uh, in, change the way the rest of the world lives. So first of all, be curious uh, and then be open to all these experiences that allow you to combine different experiences. We might say also be on the lookout. Don't be afraid for oppositional experiences. Um, and I, I'm fond of, of urging people to take every opportunity to think backwards, to start at the end. I was reading something in the newspaper the other day. That's what they're doing at the moment with this COVID virus. We may have a surplus of this vaccine here pretty soon. What are we going to do with that? surplus. Are we going to give it away? But some smart people of the United States give it to other countries. Seems like the rational, reasonable thing to do. But let's start at the end. Supposing we've done that, what's the worst case scenario? So maybe before we start, you know, starting a company, uh, is we, we should have a kind of, uh, not a, a post-mortem, but a pre-mortem. How could this thing die? What could it be all at the end of the day, what all things that could go wrong here happen? and then work backwards from uh, that point of view. That's as I talked about in the book, Jeff Bezos and Amazon, where he was sitting there working at, I think at D.E. Shaw or one of those hedge funds in, in New York. And, and, and he realized that the internet traffic was increasing at 2,300 times per year. Uh, that's the solution. What's the problem? Shopping is the problem. It's hugely <laughs> And it's, it's, um, ecologically destructive. You get in your car and you drive around to one suburban mall or, or if you're smart, maybe you get on the subway in Manhattan and you can go in and out of downtown Manhattan or from Brooklyn or whatever. Um, and, but it's still very time consuming and it's expensive in terms of the uh, uh, use of natural resources. Better way to do it, use the internet um, in which one truck bringing a lot of stuff to a lot of people can get the things there quickly to you. So he saw the solution and then he went in search of a problem and worked backwards from the problem to implement what is today, of course, Amazon. So I want to keep talking about curiosity within the context of education, because you do talk in the book about the importance of expanding on that curiosity as far as educating oneself, maybe outside of the realm of academia. Um, so especially talking to you as a teacher yourself, um, what should, what should students take away from that? What should teachers take away from that? I had, interestingly enough, I had a, a lovely time um, with three grandchildren. They're ages 12, 14, and 16 this past week. They were with mm -hmm. us for uh, five, six days. It was great. We had a wonderful time. 
you would expect with three teenagers, it would be a disaster. <laughs> it wasn't. It was exhilarating. Kids today are so smart and they're into so many different things. It was a reintroduction of, of, for me as to how the word world really works. But one of the kids says to, says to me, in my school, you know, we got all these AP courses, but we're stopping them all. We're shutting them down. We're reducing the number of AP. Why? And this would happen to be a prep school in New York. Well, because what we were doing in those AP courses was teaching to the test. That everything was, well, we got to we do well on this test that's coming up. So this is the curriculum we're, we're going to follow. But the students didn't like this because they might, well, they, I'd like to talk about this today. That was really very interesting. I don't agree with what, what uh, uh, Caroline said over there. Let's talk about, no, you can't do that. Well, I'm sorry, we've got to get through this particular unit so we can get on. And the teachers didn't like this and the students didn't like this. They wanted to follow naturally lines of development that came out of that interpersonal experience, that interpersonal learning experience. And I I think that that's, that's a liability that we should be on the lookout for and try to overcome in that we don't preclude young people from exploring things, from exercising their natural sense of curiosity by setting up educational frameworks that seem to do that. I'm, I, I would, might prove, sound like a, a super conservative here when we say I'm very much in favor of these charter schools that set up, all right, well, let's set up an entirely new or unheard of approach to education. <laughs> One of my favorite lines is Einstein, it turns out, actually borrowed this, I think maybe subliminally or subconsciously from Mark Twain, who said, uh, education is what remains after you throw out everything you learned in school. I think you do mention that one in the book. Yeah. And that, that's that there's there's a lot of. A lot of truth to that. Uh, so I think, I think, at least it, what what I learned over the years is you're not there to hand people a nugget of wisdom because one person's wisdom is somebody else's wisdom, and maybe they know more about it than you do. It's better to set up a con a context in which sort of adversarial ideas can meet one another and 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 push back and come forward, and and this is how real progress is made. Once again, through kind of oppositional, contrary thinking, rather than um, a kind of, well, Virginia Woolf, and this is mentioned in the book too, my favorite quote there is, uh, Virginia Woolf shows up at a series of lectures from which the famous A Room of Her Own uh, was extracted and published. And she says, I am not here tonight to hand you a nugget of wisdom. Uh, what I want to do is throw out some ideas. Let's get to bring it on. Let's get together. Let's discuss things. Yeah, you got to bring things. You got to know things, but maybe you can then go out and, and learn things. And, and once you learn a few things, we can get together and really make some progress. So if I'm, if I'm a student who is taking a course where you know, it is kind of this rigid teaching to the test type of course, um, what, what can I do to maximize my education? Or is that a trickier question? Transfer. <laughs> Transfer to another university. Um, I don't. Yeah, well, here's one thing. You you know, there's a lot of good stuff on online today. There's a lot of
good podcasts out there. Um, you can, if you're a curious person, you can root around uh, and find either there, you know, there are things such as master class, uh, but there are things. One Day University has, uh, you know, they're, 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 with the COVID uh, pandemic, some of these some of these organizations that were giving live lectures are now filming all these things, and they're available on YouTube, or you can pay a nominal amount and get them that way. Coursera, I've worked with with um, uh, a music course. I think there are nearly 200,000 people inscribed or taking that at the moment. Uh, I think we have one at Yale. It was talked about in the New York Times recently. It has 3,400,000 um, students around wow. the United States. Yeah, so you can, and, and by by just watching other people, uh, maybe embracing uh, other people's approach to this, you can learn more. Now, let's get real help here, however. No 16, 18, 20-year-old kid is really going to go out. I mean, it would be a rare kid that would go out and sort of, I want to find an alternative solution to, to this. Um, I don't really, I'm not, I'm not going to buy what this dead white man says here. I'm going to go out and try to to see, um, figure out on my own what the world is really about. And that, in essence, is exactly what Leonardo da Vinci did, because he, he couldn't. He was locked out of school. He was illegitimate. He was a bastard, and he couldn't receive a traditional education of the Roman Catholic Church, couldn't learn Latin, which was the, ironically, the lingua franca of the day. So he had to go rediscover all this all on his own. As you were saying, Michael, he had to, to uh, uh, in, engage his innate curiosity. Which is and led him to all of the remarkable things that he discovered. Um, so I mentioned a little bit ago about um, how there's maybe a not so savory side to being a genius, um, and I want to I want to come back to that because you do talk about in the book how um, so many of these geniuses are or were problematic in their own ways. Um, so how how do we sort of separate? the genius from the flawed human? I mean, should we separate them? It, it's a fascinating question. And see, see, if I were teaching this, what I would do is set up maybe half of the room. Okay, um, uh, Adolf Hitler is a genius. And the other room, oh, I want you to argue from this point of view, what we call a moot court or something like that. Adolf Hitler uh, is, is not a genius, he's a psychopath. Um, does does the genius always have to, to do good, or can the can genius be for good or or for ill? Um, then other questions, and this is very much in the news everywhere today. Uh, sort of the, the what do you call that? You tell me. You know more about it than I do. I bet the sort of the woke generation and the um, uh, taking the culture. Yeah, the can exactly. Thank you. <laughs> you see why I need young people to bring me into the cultural world of today. Okay, the cancel culture. But a lot of people that we would call geniuses are getting canceled left and right. Now, the one that really broke my heart the other day was David Hume. And nobody knows who David Hume is. But but for old people, he's the, he's the guy really, and it's not necessarily bad. But it's worth talking about this. He he laid the philosophical foundations for Western capitalism. Yes, Adam, Adam Smith. They were both there in Edinburgh in the 18th century, and Adam Smith, the wealth of nations, was building off the philosophical underpinning of David Hume. Well, I heard the University of Edinburgh taking Hume's name off of the major uh, building there at the University of Edinburgh because oh uh, because of his position on slavery. 
All right. So then that that brings up a question: What are we going to do here? And the same thing with the Board of Education of California uh, in San Francisco uh, recently. Um, it had, even Abraham Lincoln, George Washington was was. Um, canceled, uh, but even Abraham Lincoln, because of an, uh, a stance that he took with regard to an aspect of dealing with uh, Native Americans. So uh, what, it's a fascinating question. What standards are we going to invoke for a people of a particular era, particular age? What sort of threshold are we going to set? Must the good uh, be sacrificed on the altar of the perfect? And I, um, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know the answer to that. Um, do you know, what's your opinion, Michael? I, I mean, well, actually, I was, um, I was just thinking about this yesterday, getting ready for this interview. I was watching CBS Sunday Morning, and they were talking about this exact thing with reference to oh. artists, and they are talking about Picasso, and I was like, I'm reading about that right now. <laughs> so, yeah. I, yeah, it was... Um, it's a, it's a really interesting question. It's hard to sort of figure out because you have people who, you know, on the one hand have done terrible things, but then if you completely take them out of the culture, out of history, they have these contributions to art that without that, there are these, there are sort of these gaps in the cultural history. So how do you, how do you balance that? I think it's, it's tricky. It's tricky. It's, it's tricky. And I, you know, and the great names here, you've already mentioned quite correctly, Pablo Picasso, Richard Wagner, a virulent anti-Semite would have to be there. Um, a, a question, uh, Ernest Hemingway uh, and his treatment of women, uh, for a, example, would be would be uh, another one. And, and my heavens, they're, they're pretty important figures in aspects of uh, Western culture. So Medicine is another one you talk about. Yeah, that's right. Th Thomas Edison, he's out there killing elephants. Right. <laughs> I mean, and then filming it. Right. <laughs> yeah, for economic gain. Mm -hmm. um, that, I mean, I think he should. Uh, <laughs> I think you, you'd really have to be pretty cold hearted, even back in Edison's day, not to be able to stand up and say, you know, that's wrong. We, right. can't, we can't do that. I'm not going to honor that. But the other, it's, you know, you can always fall back on, well, everybody else was doing it. Well, maybe it should have been your job to be better than that. Right. You should have had a higher moral threshold hold on, on your own. So it's a fascinating question. There are other fascinating uh, questions embedded in this uh, genius uh, thing uh, uh, also that we could go, go into. It, but the, the really good news here, although there may not be any answers, there is no answer, there is no answer, absolute answer. The really good news is that it forces us to think in a productive, humane, humanistic way about some issues that are very, very important. Definitely. Um, and maybe students that are listening to this can have these conversations in class themselves. Um, that, we, yeah, we, that would be great. That would be great. Because that kind of thing, then you take it out of the classroom. The learning really ha has to happen out of, out of the, outside the classroom. Absolutely. I mean, we could keep going on about this for hours. Um, but I want to ask, do you have a favorite or a most important insight from the book? Hmm. You know, 
<laughs> silly, silly me, Craig. <laughs> why, why don't you have an answer here, Craig? Um, I think, uh, yeah, the takeaway take in a way is never give up. Never, never stop pushing. Um, yeah, yeah, IQ is hugely important. Grades are important, but passion, curiosity, uh, uh, just you know, grind it out day after day. Suck it up, grind it out. Have a vision. Have a tr try to figure out who you are and what you want to be, and work for that every day of your life. Um, which reminds me maybe of my favorite. Now that I think of it, thank you for reminding me of this. There's a quote toward the end of one chapter there in the book, and maybe it's a quote for, for, um, uh, for my life, and it, maybe it's a quote for all of us. It's from the sculpture, sculpture Henry Moore, uh, a British sculptor, um, Henry Moore, who said, sculptors, who said, um, the most important thing in life is to have a passion, something that you come to every day of your life, 24 seven with every fiber of your body. The only thing that's important is that this one great passion of your life is something that you can never accomplish. What? Why would you want that? Because once you accomplish it, you're dead. You have nothing to get you out of bed in the morning. You have nothing to drive you on. You have nothing to think about the focus to stay alive for. So having a passion, being curious about things, trying to get ahead, get this done day in and day out over decades is very important. So have this passion, but, uh, but realize that if you satisfy that particular, you're going to have to find another pa passion really fast or stay with the one you got. Ironically, the way set that up in the book is that children's story, which I always love and still read to grandchildren, though I'm not sure they understand it. Uh, what is it called? The, the Missing Piece of Shell Story? Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, yeah. which is actually Harper Cotton's book. Yeah, it is. You know, it, and the moral there is you roll along through life. You think you, you think you've reached nirvana. You found your missing piece and you're not as happy as you were when you were looking for that missing piece. <laughs> Yeah, it's that it's the passion that drives you, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, Craig, I just have one more question for you, and this is a question that we ask all of the guests on the podcast. Since this is primarily for teachers and their students, who was your favorite teacher? I'll give you two uh, answers, two okay. characters. My favorite teacher, um, uh, the practical answer is my favorite teacher was a man whom I encountered at the Eastman School of Music when I was there to learn to be a concert pianist. He had come out of Yale and he had majored in something called history, arts, and letters, although he himself was a fine, fine pianist. So there he was at a music conservatory, and but he had a couple of kids, two or three of them, that he was teaching uh, a, a course on Western intellectual philosophy. And I signed up for this and it just opened a world of things to me. And I spent as much time over in the University of Rochester, they called it the River Campus Library as I did at the Eastman School of Music. I, I, maybe I was just miscast there because I didn't really have any musical talent anyway. And I found this one young man who was only about 28 at the time. And I was 20, 21, you know, a college student um, who was able to 
open some doors that otherwise not would not have been open to me. The other great teacher, I think, in one's life, if you would ask me who's the greatest genius in your book that you ran into or who you find most impressive, it would be a toss up there between Leonardo da Vinci and his curiosity, his courage, and William Shakespeare, who had this miraculous capacity to see all of human nature. If you want to learn about the world, it'd be taught about the world and how people are and every human experience, one could do no better than to read Shakespeare. Definitely, I have to agree with you on that one. <laughs> so, but, but then do I get to ask you a question, Michael? What was your major as, a, as an undergraduate? What was my major? So I was an English major with a theater and creative writing double minor. Oh, okay. So, so you, you would agree. Shakespeare is, is pretty astonishing. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. But especially, you know, the... English, the writing, the theater at all, it all kind of yeah, centered yeah. around Shakespeare in the end. <laughs> I hope nobody's going to cancel Shakespeare. Are they going to cancel the cancel culture going to cancel Shakespeare? I don't think he has too many skeletons in his closet that we know of yet. I guess, I guess we'll have to wait and see. Yeah. But yeah. he takes a rather sympathetic view of, 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 people of color and, and people of different religious backgrounds. I mean, his portrayal of Iago, excuse me, of Otello, and his portrayal uh, of the merchant merchant of Venice is quite sympathetic in, in many ways. And so maybe he, maybe he was far outside, far seeing outside of his time and will not be canceled as a result of that. Maybe he had a longer moral vision he may, he may be one of the exceptions. We'll cross our fingers. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, well, Craig, thank you for talking with us today. It's been so great talking to you. Hey, it was my pleasure being here. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Harper Academic Calling. Subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite third-party app for more episodes. And be sure to visit us at harperacademic.com for more information about this and other great books.